and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Val Ackerman has spent the past 34 years working in a variety of ways in the world of sport. She was recently named the fifth commissioner of the Big East in 2013. She previously served as an attorney and executive at the National Basketball Association, also known as the NBA and was the founding president of the Women's National Basketball Association, also known as the WNBA, and is also the past president of USA Basketball, which oversees the U.S. men's and women's Olympic basketball program. In addition to that, she's also served for two terms as the U.S. representative to the International Basketball Federation, also known as FIBA. She's been inducted as a contributor into both the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2021 and the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2011, and has received the Billie Jean King Leadership Award from the Women's Sports Foundation in 2016. Val has done a lot in the wild world of sports and specifically in basketball. 
She also played at an extremely high level. She's a graduate of University of Virginia, where she graduated with high honors. And she was also a three-time captain there, an academic All-American. And she really um, was not just a basketball player. She excelled in the classroom as well as she went on to receive her law degree from UCLA. So Val has a wide-ranging history of leadership in sports And what I love about this conversation is that Val is going to share what similarities exist within men's and women's sports and what she has found to be interesting and intriguing about working in the world of sports and also how she's evolved as a leader throughout the years. So this conversation is going to be wide ranging, but it's also going to tackle Val's journey and what she's learned along the way. And one note, we did record this conversation. I was in my office in Bethesda, Maryland, and Val was in New York City. Her office is in the heart of New York City. So what comes with that are sirens and noises in the background. And we did our best to not let those hijack our conversation. I think our phone goes off at one point. So if you stay focused and and can excuse those sounds, we'd appreciate it because this is a gem of a conversation. So here is Val Ackerman. Val, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am in the sports world and I often ask uh, female sports leaders that I've been fortunate to work with some athletic directors and some people in the sports world who I should chat with. And your name comes up over and over again. So uh, here you are. I'm glad we're connecting. And where I thought we'd start is when I asked you, hey, what's an interesting topic that you like talking about? You mentioned that you've lived at the intersection of all these different sports cultures, the NBA, the WNBA, the Big East, USA Basketball. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the subcultures that exist within men's sports and women's sports, where there are similarities, where there are differences? And let's just jump off from there. Yeah, sure, Um, Brian. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's a privilege to be here today and, um, and to have the chance to talk to you about some things, you know, that maybe uh, aren't what you would read in the sports pages um, routinely. And and what you mentioned is probably something most fans of sports might not think about, the notion that um, sports aren't like a monolithic block. I mean, um, you know, if you work in in one sport, it's, you know, there may be some similarities in terms of the types of issues you'd confront um, across other sports but there'd probably be more differences than similarities that would range from, you know, how leagues operate, um, what, you know, the playing rules are, of course, who the fans are, um, what the key business priorities would be if you're trying to, you know, build that sport. Um, and, and of course you mentioned the differences between men's and women's sports can in some cases be really profound. And, you know, I, I would say, as I've been, you know, marching through this line of work now for, it's hard to believe, almost 34 years come November since I got into the sports business. It really has been sort of intellectually fascinating to, you know, live the differences, um, you know, in the people, in the histories, the cultures of men's and women's sports. And and so I've, I've sort of experienced it first as, a, you know, as an athlete growing up, um, as a student athlete, the University of Virginia in the early years of Title IX, when our women's basketball team had very little and the men's team was Final Four material. Um, I, you know, I played overseas, saw what that was like. I, 
um, got my first job in the sports business working for the NBA, or as I came to call it, the MNBA, the men's I, league. Oh, the men's, the men's NBA. MNBA, right, right. <laughs> uh, that was my joke with David Stern. Um, flipped over to the WNBA. And hey, then- Val, on that, on that front of the MNW, MNBA, WNBA, when the name of the WNBA was coming out, can you give us like a behind the curtain into that? Because we hear that now too, in, in college athletics, it's, is it men's basketball or are you calling it women's basketball? And, and we make a distinction often for women. Any thoughts on the name of the WNBA? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it was never much debate about the fact that it would be the WNBA. I mean, you know, there was no, no hint or thought that we would call it the women's pro basketball league or something that did not have the words, the three letters NBA in it. I mean, it was very intentional to draft off of the, you know, the mother league, so to speak, or the father league, however you want to call it, and take advantage of that equity um, and that identification in the minds of fans. I mean, our thinking was we want it to be seen as a first rate operation coming out of the gate. And so, you know, NBA it was, and since there was already a, you know, an NBA, um, we had to differentiate it as the women's league. And so, you know, in our minds were, for example, the women's final four in college basketball. So it didn't, with the, the LPGA, the Ladies Professional Golf Association, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. So that gender descriptor was not something we dreamed up. I mean, that was kind of out there. And so we just adopted it and, and, you know, that's what it is. That's what it was. And that's what it is. I'm sure this question gets asked, but if you're starting a league in 2022, I know NWSL, it's not, it's a little different because major league soccer, I don't think has the same brand that the NBA had. Um, so it's a little different, but if you're starting a league, a women's league, um, maybe a softball league, or maybe that's not a hockey league. Let's go there actually. Um, a hockey league because women's hockey continues to grow. And, you know, I've had on Haley's group on here who played for the, you know, the U S national team. And, um, so yeah, if you were starting a, a hockey league tomorrow, would you call it the WNHL? I know you're friends with Gary Bettman. So like, w- how would you think about that today compared to when you started it then? WNHL, it would be for me. I mean, 100%. In fact, it's funny you should mention it. I actually did some research uh, 10 years ago for the NHL, which at that time was getting questions to your point about the perceived growth of women's ice hockey. They were getting questions about their potential interest in doing a WNBA style initiative uh, around women's ice hockey at the pro level. And uh, there were reasons why they weren't ready to jump into that at the time. But I, I think it's, it's analogous to what we did in basketball was you take if that, if they're going to get involved, they're going to want to do what we did is my guess, which is take the equity associated with the men's league, the brand identification, the goodwill, um, and, you know, and just annex it with the initial W and then sort of take it from there. I don't see it as diminishing in any way. I guess if that was your sort of backhanded question, doesn't bother me. Um, at all. And in fact, it's interesting in college basketball, because now the, the final four, um, you know, on the men's side is now being referred to internally as the men's final four, just to make clear the distinction with the women's final four. Yeah. And go back to those sub themes. So what is different about 
the WNBA. Let's just focus maybe on the WNBA and the NBA because you have such experience with with both of those leagues and the players. And I mean, I'm going to get to uh, one of the things I'm fascinated about is just a launching of a league or a reboot of the big East. We're going to get to that, but can you just compare and contrast the the subcultures that do exist within a, a men's league and, and a women's league? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, um, there's not a ton of overlap in the people that would work on both, you know, both genders, if you will. Um, and in fact, I think my journey has been unique because I, you know, I, I have functioned pretty deeply in both men's and women's basketball. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think a lot of people can say they've had that experience. Um, and so, you know, it would sort of take a several podcasts maybe to detail um, the, you know, all the differences, but it, it ranges, it ranges from, uh, I think, you know, history, uh, personality types, in the case of women's sports, when we started the WNBA as an example, there was always a sense of cause because you really did feel like you were like rolling a rock up a hill. Um, men's sports have been so far out in front of women's sports historically in this country, especially commercially. So this mindset of, you know, um, just sort of commitment and passion and labor of love and, and, you know, sort of relentlessness and doing what it takes in order to, to sort of grow it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're behind. And so there was, I think that mindset around women's sports, certainly you're dealing with different players, you know, uh, player pools are different. They have different needs. They have different mindsets of their own. I mean, just a small one. I mean, just dealing on the women's side, you're dealing with, you know, players who are working moms. And so they have a very different kind of relationship with their kids and how pregnancy and maternity affects their athletic performance then you would see on the men's side, you know, you don't worry about that. But on the women's side, you know, when you're dealing with women of childbearing age, <laughs> you have to sort of think out, okay, uh, how's this gonna work? And in fact, I'll share one anecdote. I mean, when we launched the WNBA, our, one of our three players that we put out front as, as one of the stars to be was Cheryl Swoops. And she, you know, she became pregnant a few months before the league launched, missed the first two months of the season because she was, she'd had her child, a son, and then had to take maternity leave. And so these aren't things you have to worry about on the men's side um, at all. And then last but not least, you're, you're dealing with business partners that have different mindsets um, about, you know, women's sports versus men's sports. And because the track record of women's sports hasn't, hasn't been there quite yet, the same levels it tends to be, you tend to need a tough shell when you're trying to talk a fan or a prospective business partner into signing on to a women's league. That certainly was my experience. I think things are changing now because women's sports have acquired so much momentum, but, you know, having the resiliency to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to absorb a no <laughs> and then move on and keep trying, I think is a, is a distinctive piece of what goes into being involved in a women's sport. You mentioned resiliency or grit. And I think about your story in that you wanted to work for the NBA, I think out of law school and you got rejected um, from that. Uh, I think most humans, at least for me, I got rejected from Teach for America out of college and that sent me on a different course, but you were persistent and, and stayed with it. And after working at, you know, a, a, um, at, at a firm, at a law firm for a couple of years, you go back. Um, and so you do operate within the NBA and have the resilience to, to still go toward the things that you wanted to pursue and wanted to do. 
I'm curious for you as far as you being unique and being in both of those leagues. And you said, you know, I have a unique experience in that I've spent a significant amount of time in both of those leagues and then the Big East and, and other places as well. What's unique about you that allows you to play in those different sandboxes, so to speak? Well, what, what really, um, I think, made my transition to the NBA when I got hired uh, there in 1988, what, what made it uh, such a great match for me was because I was a, quote, basketball person. I mean, I had played as a kid. I played in high school. I did really well. I went on to college um, on a basketball scholarship. I played overseas. I really, my dad had been a player and a coach and a referee. My granddad had been a player and a, and a coach and a ref and an administrator. And so I, I just was, basketball is so natural to me. And, you know, I, I think that made, you know, made me a natural, if that makes sense to work there, to speak the language, and importantly, to, you know, provided me with some credibility. When I had to deal right out of the gate with people like Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and Willis Reed, um, who were NBA general managers at the time I got to the league. And that was my first job was dealing with salary cap matters, player contract approvals, trade conference calls. I mean, you know, those, were, those guys were calling me for salary cap advice. And the fact that I had played, I think, carried a lot of weight with them. So I think that was, you know, that was one. Number two, I don't know. I just, my, my personality, I think, was such that I could roll with things. Um, you know, I, I, I try to have a sense of humor about things. David was a very demanding boss. I didn't, I didn't cower <laughs> when, when his voice level, you know, went up a few decibels, which happened a lot. And um, you know, I worked very hard, maybe this is the best thing to say, on my personal relationships at the league, because I think in any line of work, that makes or breaks you. How you get along with people, are you reliable, are you a good teammate? You know, again, can you roll with things if you're a warm woman working in this line of work? I mean, that, that kind of stuff, I think, um, helped, you know, sort of buoy me there. And then same thing when I moved over to women's basketball full time. I mean, I played it. I mean, I was totally, I was about as authentic as you can get in women's basketball because I had played and, you know, um, and so I, you know, the women's basketball coaches sort of saw me as a friend. I, I wasn't like I was some, you know, some guy who didn't know anything about the women's game. I mean, they knew, you know, how true I was to that side of things. And so I think, Again, um, it, it made for a very interesting journey for me to kind of segue. And then when I, you know, started working with USA Basketball and went international with all of this, uh, you know, became a, a different culture altogether because of the differences that you see globally in terms of attitudes about sports, attitudes about women, you know, attitudes about how to make decisions, et cetera. It, it was it was actually kind of fascinating. You mentioned David and you're referencing David Stern, the longtime commissioner of the NBA. And so I've found in my life that my best mentors actually are the ones that share some of their imperfections and teach me how not to operate as much as they teach me how to operate. And so you worked alongside him and you mentioned, we mentioned Gary Bettman earlier. Uh, when you took over the WNBA, what were things that you were thinking that you want to do differently from someone like David and what were things that you wanted to take from him and try to do similarly? Well, 
I mean, David, I, I could go on all day about what it was like to work for him, um, how important he was in terms of establishing the NBA as a global brand. Um, you know, what the journey of the company was when I started, it was a hundred people. He built it into a thousand people. And Adam, of course, has taken it from there. But, um, but I would say, you know, he was a lawyer. The things that I took from him were, he was a lawyer. He, I mean, I don't have his brilliance, but I have his ethic. <laughs> he was a hardworking guy. He was the first guy in, last guy out. You know, so he, you know, he walked the walk. Um, he was very thorough. He sort of, he sort of, you know, made you understand. You had to be very, very thorough in your preparation. And, and so I didn't, I never walked into his office without, frankly, a lot of stressing because I, I just knew once I got in there, he's going to start firing questions at me after 30 seconds. And I had to be ready for anything. And so this notion of preparation, attention to detail um, were hallmarks. He had this, you know, this, this adage that micromanagement is underrated. Hmm. And so you don't want to hear that the CEO is a micromanager. I mean, that's like a disaster, but he was, but he knew when to sort of step back and, and be, strate be the strategic CEO he needed to be. Um, but, but my, you know, but this notion of you got to pay attention to the details is always, you know, sort of stuck with me. And, you know, finally, you know, as a lawyer, we all sort of understood the importance of precedent. Like if something, you know, if we had to do something disciplinary, for example, we didn't just make it up. We would say, okay, has this happened before? We're not going to recreate the wheel. We know when you're running a league, you got to be perceived as fair. And that's where precedents matter with your, you know, with your stakeholders. So those are the kinds of things I took from him. And he could be charming in his way. And, and no, you know, I miss him. I got to say, I miss him every day. You know, what I, what I could never do. I mean, he was mercurial and he got more so it seemed the longer he was in, you know, in the chair. And so I could never do what he would do to rattle people and, you know, raise his voice and frankly, you know, dress people down. He did, he did that. And I got dressed down at times and that made me feel terrible. And so, you know, I, those are the things I, I, I don't do as a manager and could never do. I would just add, you know, my other mentor, maybe even more so was Russ Granick, the longtime deputy commissioner of the NBA, who was sort of ying to David's yang. They were a great team. Russ was like a flatline, just a complete flatline. He just, if he stressed, we didn't know it. He just was steady Eddie, very practical. And, you know, as David was sort of doing the, you know, up and down, <laughs> um, Russ was the, you know, was the guy that kind of kept the trains running and was sort of very calm in his demeanor. And so that made as big a, an impression on me, I would say, as that style of getting things done and how to, you know, how to act and how to how to manage, you know, was as it made as much an impression on me as, you know, as, as David did. Are you more similar to Russ in your leadership style or more similar to David? I'm kind of probably in between. I mean, I think I took the best of both of them. Um, I'd like to think anyway, that I took the best of both of them. I try really hard to be practical, you know, but visionary, um, you know, I, 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 I almost never raise my voice with my staff. I mean, if I have, I, I don't remember that I did. Um, I try, you know, really hard to be a good communicator. I mean, David would sometimes not tell you things and that was annoying <laughs> that you didn't hear about something that he did. And he sort of told you later or whatever. And Russ was a, 
a really solid, you know, internal communicator. So I, I try to, I, you know, I try to, again, take away the best of both of them. Is there anything you're better at today than you were when you first got the job with the WNBA and, and you're leading a team? And obviously that team's probably grown tremendously over the years, but as you think about your own personal growth or professional growth as a leader, what are you better at today than you were when you were, when you were back then? Well, I, I would, I would say without a doubt, I'm a better leader, much more mature, developed leader than, than I was when I took the job at the WNBA. I mean, when David and Russ appointed me to lead the league, it was in 1996. Um, I was 27 years old. Wasn't quite 27, 37, sorry, 37 years old. I was 36. I was 37 later that year. So I was, you know, quite, quite young. Um, I'd learned a lot working for them. Uh, I think I was the natural to take it on because of my work at the league. I'd been an exec, you know, an attorney and executive there for eight years. I knew how the place ran. David wanted it integrated. And I knew, you know, I knew how all, you know, how to build all the bridges internally. He didn't want a separate staff. I knew all the department heads. I mean, I think I really made sense. Uh, I had worked on the national team program that preceded the launch of the WNBA. And, and so, um, but I was untested in many ways. I had never had a job like that before where I was sort of to be out front, put out front, um, being the public face, the public corporate face of the league. Of course, the players and the coaches were faces of the league as well. So I learned a lot. It was baptism by fire. Um, and frankly, the things that I did after I left the league, which was on my terms, um, made me a better leader. I mean, the things that, that followed when I became the president of USA Basketball, I was the US representative to FIBA. Uh, I was on several boards. I was doing consulting assignments. I was teaching, I was writing for ESPNW when the website launched as a columnist. So I did all these other things that in their way, you know, fortified my leadership skills. I had this portfolio, I think of, you know, attributes. And then now I've been at this work for nine years and I've been tested in ways I was never tested at the WNBA because there I was still reporting into David and still reporting into Russ and they seem to want to make big decisions. And so now the decision-making rests with me. And so uh, I, I really do think my evolution um, as a, uh, you know, as a leader has been very, you know, very, um, sort of comprehensive and, and lengthy. And, and I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, again, a, a much more effective leader. It would be interesting to go back now and see what it would be like to lead the WNBA with the leadership skills I have now. I don't, you know, don't expect that opportunity to ever happen. Uh, those days are over, but I, but it, but it, you know, you, you do sort of, you know, in implicit and explicit ways know that you've changed. You also be, you also talk about being a mom and, I think part of what the stepping away from the WMBA was also to make sure that you were, you were there for your kids. Can you talk about what you learned from being a mom and how that also impacted your leadership style? Well, that was, I would describe, you know, my maternity, my pregnancy and maternity early, the early years as one of the most challenging periods of my life. I mean, it was having children was the best thing that ever happened to me. I have two daughters, Emily and Sally. Emily was born in 92. Sally was born in 94. They were, you know, three and one when the WNBA launched. Um, quite honestly, to be honest, I mean, when I got pregnant, I was, I was a unicorn. 
in the office. I mean, we had very few women, senior women working at the league or at, at the teams. Um, you know, I was working for people whose wives didn't work. To be honest, they did not expect me to come back. And my job morphed for that reason. There was not an expectation I would, you know, want to be a working mom. Uh, for reasons I don't know, because I never said that. I never said I'm not coming back. And so I, frankly, when I came back off, I really had something to prove at the league. Um, and, and it was, you know, uh, it, it's very hard to be in a job that's very demanding, which requires a lot of travel when you've got young children. And so I, you know, I did the best I could with it. My husband, Charlie was amazing, remains amazing. Um, you know, I had a, we had a full-time nanny. We had a not live in, but she, you know, spent a lot of time with the kids every day. I had my mother, my mother-in-law in the wings. And, um, and so, you know, I don't have any great, you know, great advice other than it, it takes a village. If you want to be a working parent, you can't do it alone. You got to have an understanding employer. My life was made doubly hard because we didn't have technology like we have today. You couldn't call in with a Zoom call. You had to be there every single day. Um, and, you know, I know the people there were sort of keeping track of my hours. So I missed a lot as a mom. I tried not to miss the big things. I missed a lot of little things. And that frankly contributed to my desire to step down after eight, eight years at the league. I mean, I felt like the league was in a decent enough place to walk away, but I really wanted to spend time with my kids who at that point were tweens. And, um, and so that, you know, that prompted the decision, hard decision in many ways, very easy in other ways because of the, you know, the press on your sensibilities as a parent. Uh, so I, you know, again, I could go on and on on this, but I, I feel like I had the best of all worlds being both a parent and a working mom, but it isn't easy. It isn't easy. And it's very personal, for, I think, for every parent is sort of how you and your partner or your spouse sort of navigate you know, how to manage all the work that needs to be done to be effective in both roles. I know my, my mom was an educator and I'm one of three boys and um, she left education to help raise me and my brothers. And one of the things she told my wife is that she actually wishes she had kept working at some point. Um, and she found it very hard to get back into education uh, once she left and so my wife continues to work and, and I think takes a lot of pride in, in her work and, and we make it work um, for you leaving and then coming back, even though you were still involved with stuff, leaving isn't like all encompassing, but, but the ability to sort of focus, Hey, I'm going to focus on my kids and then come back um, later on. Can you walk us through what that was like for you? And I think this is helpful for, for a couple of reasons. One for people who are male, who may not be thinking about this because it's not the same for them, at least for me. Um, and then two, like I know a lot of brilliant women right now. I'm, I'm 38 years old. Uh, my friends are having kids. They have young kids. I know a lot of brilliant women right now who have put their careers on hold to help raise their kids. And that's their decision and their choice and a family decision. But I, I, if they're listening, I'm curious for them to start thinking about, okay, at what age and at what point would they like to get back to their career and, and how might they transition in, in that way effectively? Well, um, as I said, 
you know, I, it was my decision to leave the WNBA. I actually gave them a lot of notice. And then when I came back a year later and said, okay, uh, you know, the, what I got back was, are you serious? I mean, are you really going to do, are you really doing this? Um, and so then there became the scramble to find my, you know, my successor. Um, but for me, you know, I really wasn't focused on the re-entry at that point. I mean, I, I was so tired, to be honest. I, I just was so exhausted and so needed the break. What I will say is I did have a soft landing because I had been serving for many years as one of the NBA's representatives on um, the board of USA Basketball, the national governing body um, with whom the NBA had to partner in order to have NBA players participate in the Olympics. So Russ Granick, Rod Thorne, and I were the original NBA appointees to the USA Basketball Board in 1989. So I'd been all along on the board. And then in uh, 04 uh, was the Athens Games, um, with which I was heavily involved. And that's when USA Basketball rotates out its leadership, the board you know, chair and the others on the executive committee. So in 04, I had the opportunity to become the next board chair of USA Basketball, whether I stayed at the WNBA or not, that became my soft landing. So when I left the league, I basically was, I became the board chair. The title at that time was president. And, you know, it was sort of, you know, part-time, but I made a part-time plus. I kind of threw myself into USA Basketball in that role. And that then led to my being, um, you know, approached to become the U.S. representative to the International Basketball Federation. The acronym there is FIBA, and they're based in Geneva. And USA Basketball is one of their 215 national federations. So in short order, like I'd segued out of the WNBA into this international basketball world. Um, so it wasn't like I was just like gone, you know, I was still involved. And then little by little, other things started to come my way. And so before long, I actually had this pretty cool portfolio of activities. Um, but I could do them at home. You know, I could do them on my own time. I could pick and choose the travel a little bit. But the important things that were important to me were like, I could take my kids to school. I could be there with them after school. We could have family dinners where I was home. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and I could sort of be kind of have an interlude in my life where I was more present physically with my daughters. That, that was for me, the trade-off. And I, again, I was less focused on how am I gonna get back into sports than you know, how can I sort of adjust to this new, this new kind of lifestyle I had. And then you know, fast forward uh, eight years, my younger daughter, Sally uh, was going off to college in the um, you know, fall of 2013, she graduated spring of 2013. And just by sheer coincidence, that's when the Big East came calling through a search firm to find a new commissioner for the new Big East. And so quite honestly, they, they came to me and, and it was sort of a combination of an intriguing job in New York where I didn't have to move, basketball you know, oriented. Uh, I knew the founder of the Big East, Dave Gavitt, well, and my, you know, I had the bandwidth back because Sally was going off to college. So it just sort of worked out for me <laughs> that, you know, the timing of these chapters of my, you know, professional journey just synced up in a way that kind of ended up working out in terms of the, you know, the ages of my kids and so forth. 
So that's how it happened for me. It was somewhat unplanned. And, you know, uh, looking back, you know, it, it all sort of sounds like it fits together, but I can tell you it wasn't anything that was scripted. I went to Syracuse. So the Big East uh, carries some weight in my journey and my story and going to Madison Square Garden for the Big East tournament. And there's a lot of nostalgia that I don't think we need to talk about on this podcast. But for you, you were almost involved in this reboot of the Big East. It was going to look different than what I I had when I was in college with Syracuse and Georgetown and and, and those schools. Um, can you talk about what it's like to reboot or to start um, an organization, the WNBA? I mean, I think you were involved two years prior to even, um, you know, becoming president and running it, but you've been at the ground level of that. And then a reboot with the Big East, which looks very different today than it did almost 10 years ago in 2013. So can you talk about what it's like to lead a team from the beginning uh, uh, and what you've experienced in, in that regard? Well, it's a, it was very interesting. I felt like lightning strike struck me twice in my career, being part of the launch of the WNBA and to your point, the reboot of the Big East and, and similarities, but differences. I mean, in the case of the WNBA, we were starting a brand new league but with an established name, the NBA, remember per my earlier comment, it was the WNBA, um, with the benefit of this tremendous infrastructure. I mean, David just put the whole company on the WNBA. I mean, I was sort of traffic copying it, but the fact is we, you know, we, we, were, we were using NBA staff, we were using NBA marketing expertise, we were availing ourselves of NBA teams. And so we had a head start you know, but we were creating a brand new product. Um, women's basketball, you know, wasn't itself new, but, and women's pro basketball had been attempted a dozen times in our country over the last few decades, but nothing had ever worked. It, these were failed businesses. So here we were with the NBA's imprimatur, basically, um, you know, reimagining what women's basketball, you know, could be. Um, and, you know, and, and in effect, trying to elevate it to a true major league sport. In fact, that was our mantra early was we wanted the WNBA to be the fifth major league behind the NBA, major league baseball, the NHL and, and the NFL. So, so that was, you know, that was the launch, but everything had to be done from scratch. Um, and in the case of the big East, it was sort of interesting. We had an established brand. I mean, there was a template. This had been, you know, this was a league that was trying to, you know, stay in business um, with some of the same old schools, to your point, I mean, we had the so-called Catholic Seven, including Villanova and Georgetown and Seton Hall, St. John's, and then DePaul Marquette, Providence, of course, coming out of the old Big East. And they were just trying to keep it going, you know, following um, the, you know, the, the defections by so many schools, old and new, mostly to the ACC, and mo all because of football. So, you know, my challenge was I had no infrastructure. I had this established brand, but the, you know, the old league, you know, what became of it, they had to rename the American, they had the offices, they had the staff. I had to start it up again here in New York City, you know, where the presidents wanted to be. I had no staff. I had no, you know, email accounts. I had no checking account for the conference. I had, we had no website. I had to hire everyone. I mean, it, you know, I was holed up with our law firm for 14 months because I didn't have an office. 
So the, the, the startup there, the startup component there was very real uh, and very different from the WNBA, but, you know, but the analogies I think were, were also there in terms of, you know, knowing what you have to do to sort of get a league going, getting it re-going, if that's a word, um, re-establishing, you know, staffing and infrastructure and uh, methodologies and trying to get strategic after a while, which we did. Um, so again, two, you know, very different, but in many ways, you know, analogous experiences here. And it was, you know, it's been, it was fascinating to be able to work on both. It's interesting. I get to work with some front office professionals in, in pro sports and some athletic directors. And um, one of the interesting people, and I have friends that are in front offices and, and, and run teams. And then I work with executives and yada, yada, yada. But Theo Epstein, who was the general manager of the Boston Red Sox, um, left the Boston Red Sox after getting them to push through and, and, and win a championship um, World Series. Uh, then he went to the Chicago Cubs. They won a World Series. But he spent 10 years in Boston and 10 years in Chicago. And I saw an interview with him and he said, you know, he just stepped away and now he's serving as a consultant. I think he moved to near your neck of the woods. Um, and he's still a young guy. And he said, I feel like 10 years, once you do something for 10 years, it's kind of time for someone else to take it on, or it's time to take a break and go in a different direction. And so I'm thinking about your story and I'm thinking about his quote. I mean, you said 34 years, I'm not a math major by any <laughs> stretch of the imagination, but you know, you had your run at the NBA, then you had the WNBA for about 10 years. You take a break. Then Big East comes calling 2013. We're in 2022. Now we're getting on 10 years. What are your thoughts on sort of chapters and seasons and, and sort of, you know, having a starting point? I know you said it wasn't some planned out vision that you had, but is there value in stepping aside and, and passing the mantle on to someone else or someone like David Stern, who, who, who was with the NBA? I don't know how many years, but it was a long 30. run. He 30, was there for 30 years. Right? So three yeah. chapters, three decades, yeah. so to speak. What's your thoughts having seen him, having been in, in different sandboxes like you have been uh, as far as staying with it for the entirety or for having different seasons or chapters in your career? I think it's a really great question, Brian. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting because, I mean, in our country, we, we've decided that a president can only serve for eight years. <laughs> you know, we have this thing called term limits. I think because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but I, 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 I think, you know, there's something to certain jobs wh which are so intense probably and so demanding that after a while, you know, you kind of, for whether it's for, you know, exhaustion reasons or something else, it just sort of makes sense to sort of, you know, turn it over. Eight, eight years, you know, we've decided as a country seems to be the right amount of time um, before someone else, you know, takes it on. So it's interesting. I've seen, I've seen both ways in the sports world. I mean, I worked for a guy who did it for 30, um, probably could have done it for another few at least. Um, I, I've seen, I, I know of colleagues who have sort of bounced a, a bit more. Um, it's, and, you know, I can't, again, back to my earlier comment, my career has been totally unplanned. I mean, there's been no, 
you know, there was no going into this saying, okay, I'm only going to do this for a certain number of years. And to be honest, I don't know what my next chapter is. I'll tell you, I love the big East. I mean, I just, I just love that. It's a basketball league. I love the history. I love the garden. <laughs> I love, you know, I loved it when Villanova won two national championships um, in 16 and 18. You know, I love that we were able to bring UConn back to the Big East. I have great respect for Gina Oriyama, who I've known for 25 years. And few, very few have done more for women's basketball than, than Coach Oriyama. Um, and it's just been an honor, you know, to be sort of connected with him over the last couple of years since we brought the Huskies back. And frankly, you know, right now it's sort of a very interesting time in college sports. I mean, it's, it's, you know, sort of exciting and stressful all at the same time because so many things are happening and, um, you know, around um, the scholarship model, name, image, and likeness, gender equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now realignment has reared its head again. Um, and and so it's, it's kind of maddening some days to not know what, you know, might be going on in a year from now or five years from now. But at the same time, you know, I think the leaders in our business are really trying to step up and, and to be constructive participants in what happens next. And I, and I kind of put myself in that category. So uh, we'll see. All I can say is, you know, uh, um, I, I would never have known that I'd be sitting here, you know, in this seat speaking with you, um, you know, 10 years ago. And so I, I can't give you any more certainty about what's going to be where I'll be 10 years from now. One thing that seems certain about you, though, as you describe your journey and you talk about all these places you've been is basketball has been a constant. And so it's clear that there's a passion for basketball that is inside of you. What do you love about basketball? Um, you know, I guess it, it's really a game that I came to know and to be, you know, part of at a very early age. Um, my dad played, he was a coach, he was later an AD, he was a referee, my granddad, my granddad played at Springfield College, you know, the birthplace of basketball in 1929 and 1930. Um, you know, I, that was my first, one of my first sports. We, there were no organized sports for girls when I was growing up in the late sixties, cause it was pre title nine. We had a hoop in our driveway. My dad got this big pole and found concrete and made a base and he put the pole in the concrete base and then we stuck a backboard on it and that was my little house in our little driveway that was where I learned the game just shooting hoops um and so I just have been you know associated with it for for so long and played it in high school um and then in college and I don't know it's just um I, I you know I don't know what sort of Sort of pulled me to it. What's kept me to it? It's an exciting game. It's, you know, it sort of cuts across so many socioeconomic, ethnic kind of tiers, uh, and that was sort of the, you know, the beauty of working in international basketball because you realize that the attraction to the game isn't just sort of USA. I mean, it's a global sport in every way, and really, you know, has ignited passions for people from so many different walks of life that I don't know you sort of the more you learn about that the more uh, excited you are to be part of it if that makes any sense 
So, uh, you know, and then of course, when you're associated with something that uh, brings people joy and, it, you know, brings um, sort of accomplishments like it has in a league like the Big East, and like we're seeing in women's basketball at the collegiate and you know professional level, certainly at the Olympic level for Team USA, you know you feel proud to be part of it. So all those things I think have been reinforcing for me and have certainly kept my interest at a very high level. When I was preparing for this, I listened to a podcast that you were on, and the podcast host was Molly Fletcher, and, and Molly asked you how you would describe yourself and how others would describe you, and I forget which order it went in, but the two words were intense and serious. Um, and so have those helped you? Have they hindered you being intense, being serious, either being perceived that way or feeling like that's who you are? How have they helped? How have they hindered as you think about your career? Well, I would, I would use the, the same adjectives now. I've tried to, you know, soften in my, you know, I'm 61, 62. How old am I? I'm 62. I always lose track. Once it hit, you hit a certain age, you just quit counting. Um, I think I've mellowed a bit. Um, I, you know, I probably have scared people over the course of my career because I, you know, I am serious and, um, and I take things, you know, I, I'm competitive and I, and I want to, you know, I want to do well. And, and so, you know, when that's the case, sometimes you come off as looking anxious, but at the same time, I, you know, I like to think I'm a compassionate person. I, I care deeply about, um, you know, the relationships that I have with, you know, the many people in my life. Um, I, I try to, you know, be a, a good boss to my, and a sympathetic boss to my employees. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I try, you know, to make sure that I take time for myself, which I think for, you know, busy, uh, you know, striving professionals in all industries is sometimes really hard. And, you know, as you get older, you realize you just can't do it all. You have to slow down and, um, you know, you have to uh, just take time to, you know, both uh, self-care and then number two, enjoy, you know, the other, the many other things life has to offer. And I don't know what the adage is, smell the roses, so to speak. So I think I've gotten better at that um, over the years. And, um, you know, I think as I age, you know, and continue to sort of mellow and my time winds down in this business or wherever else I land, you know, I think, uh, I look forward, you know, to, to sort of that chapter of my life, if that makes any sense. But I do think in this hyper-competitive society, if you can't have some level of seriousness and intensity, and, you know, your work ethic has to be at a certain, if you're not that, you're, you're not, it's just a fact, <laughs> you know, you, you know, there's, you know, the four day work week or three day work week or two day work week. I mean, that's a bit of a myth. I mean, I work every day. It may not be in the office every day anymore, but I work, I work a lot, you know, and I think if you're going to be successful in your field and you're going to fulfill the demands that are made on you as a leader, you have to have that, you know, expectation that you're going to make those sorts of sacrifices. I have a friend and colleague who always says the universe will, will tell us what's going to happen. I go, I don't know what universe you're talking about, uh, but I'd like to meet it one day. Um, but back to you, you said self-care. What does self-care look like for you? Oh, well, I, you know, I try to get my sleep. Um, I am a heavy sleeper. You know, I don't go to bed late. Um, 
I try to work out, you know, I, I, you know, of course was an athlete growing up and that gets much harder to do when you're working and you live in a big city and you're a working parent. But I, you know, I do try to, you know, do cardiac work, cardio work. I, I'm a swimmer. I still try to swim when I have access to a pool. My older daughter turned me on to yoga with Adrian. So I try to do that. And that's helpful for stretching and, you know, breathing. Um, I love to travel. Um, I just got back from a, a trip with my older daughter, which was amazing. We went to Ireland and it was great. I love to see, you know, I love to see sights and, um, you know, I, I enjoy eating out when you can eat out and, and reading books. And, uh, my husband's, uh, you know, watches television and lots of shows and lots of movies. And so he brings me on to a lot of that. So I do try to clear my head. I think it's really important to clear your head, you know, regularly because there's so much going on and, you know, you can't be on all the time. You just every now and again, have to just get the work stuff out of your mind, just clear it you know, sort of free yourself up before you can come back into it in the way you need to come back into it. So I, I try to do that on a lot of different levels. There's two through lines that we'll close with. One is you talked about the power of relationships earlier and that you took a lot of pride in the NBA about building relationships. And, you know, I used to always say relationships are about communication, trust, and respect, but you hit on another piece of relationships, which is reliability. And are you reliable? Because if you're not reliable, you can have all the communication in the world, but if you don't show up and if you're not there for people, that relationship's going to fall. And then I also think about CEOs. My dad was a CEO. My dad has stories of David Stern, by the way, which we can have off air at another time. Um, but, um, you know, I, I look at like great CEOs or presidents and there's three elements that I always see, which is the attention to detail, which you obviously hit on and the legal background. My dad also went to law school. I think that helped him tremendously in that regard. Um, and then there's being a visionary, which you talked about in this conversation and that you do feel like, yeah, I'm pretty good at being strategic and being a visionary. And then the third piece I think is just emotional intelligence and your ability to relate to other human beings. It sounds like that one for you is something that you've worked hard on and you even use the word softening, softening your intensity so that you can connect with people, um, and build those relationships that are key. So those are just some summaries from my end, listening to you, um, in order to close, is there anything that you want to share? Uh, I know you're not necessarily big on social media. When we filled out your form for this conversation, you just gave us all the Big East stuff. So Big East on Twitter, Big East on Instagram, Big East on Facebook. I think people can find that. Is there anything else you're passionate about that you just want to give a megaphone to and, and shout out before we close? Well, I, I think, um, you know, to the extent there are, you know, young listeners um, who are listening to the to the show, you know, I, I would just sort of encourage them to, you know, think broadly about not only their, their personal careers, because I think it's easy to think about, okay, what am I going to do with my life? And how am I going to get to point B? And, um, you know, what's, what's, what's this going to do for me, but to, to really think about how they can be, I'm going to use the words again, constructive participants in society. Um, I mean, that, that's, you know, one, one, one negative of being in a job like I have is there's so much coming at you every day for the day job that you don't always get a chance to, you know, think about how can I be more helpful more broadly here with all the things that are going on in our world. I mean, we've got obviously no shortage of problems that we have to confront as a, as a country. 
And, uh, you know, I wish I could do more like by way of civic service, for example. Uh, but, but I just, you know, I, I would have to give up half of my job <laughs> to do it. And the demands are such that it's really not possible. So that's something I look forward to in sort of the next chapter for me is how can I be whatever it is, more philanthropic, more civic or community oriented. But I, you know, as we have young people who are setting sail, you know, I hope they will think about that in the back of their minds is, you know, how can I be a problem solver in this complex world and, um, you know, and, and be, you know, a bridge builder because I, you know, I worry about that just in our society. It's just the polarization and, and that's why I like sports. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Sports to me is one of the great, you know, ways of bringing people together in our world. And I've been involved in a lot of initiatives to that end. So I think the power of sports is very real. And uh, I think maybe to your point about why I like basketball, I think that's what I like about basketball. The fact that it can bring so many people together and be such an incredible force for positive social change. And if David Stern taught me anything, he taught me that. And so, you know, if I can take the ball a little bit further on that score, then I feel like I, you know, I've made a contribution. Well, you're certainly doing that. And I want to thank you for your time. I know you got a lot going on. So appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, hopefully we can connect in person at some point. I mentioned I'm up in New York a bunch. I'm sure you'll be down in the DC area at some point, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you. Great, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It was great, great speaking with you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I try it, you know, to make sure that I take time for myself, which I think for you know busy, uh, you know, striving professionals in all industries is sometimes really hard and you know as you get older you realize you just can't do it all you have to slow down and um, you know you have to uh, just take time to you know both uh, self-care and then number two enjoy you know the other the many other things life has to offer <laughs>